Welcome back to The World's Game, a World Cup podcast. The Men's World Cup is over, but now it's time for the women. I'm going to have Women's World Cup episodes all summer long, breaking down all the storylines and all the fun. My name is Peter Roman. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And let's dive right in. Welcome back to The World's Game, a World Cup podcast. This is going to be my quarterfinal recap, and I'll also have a little bit of the semifinals in here as well. So, I mean, the quarterfinal games were amazing. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch all of them live, but I have now watched all four, so I'm going to talk about all of them. And I have to start with the most important game, at least in my opinion, for the quarterfinals, Australia-France. So, Australia won this game. It was 0-0 after 120 minutes, but Australia won in the longest penalty shootout in World Cup history. It went 10 rounds, and Australia beat France 7-6 in penalties. Absolutely crazy. The shootout was insane. And Australia, for the first time ever, they have advanced to the semifinals of a Women's World Cup. And that is unbelievable. It is truly an amazing, amazing accomplishment for this team. And so I'm going to break down the game a little bit, and then I want to talk kind of about the broader implications of this. So this game, I mean, had everything. So first of all, to Mary Fowler, who's one of the Australian strikers, I don't know what kind of voodoo she had in this game. Like, someone put, a, like, a curse on her, I swear, because she could not score. And I don't know how she didn't score in this game. She had a golden chance in the first half that got cleared off the goal line by a defender, and she had another, like, partial breakaway, and she had another shot that was, like... She had so many chances in this game. I can't believe she didn't score. But in the game itself, though, so... The first half, at least for me, I think France was a little bit better than Australia, but, like, it wasn't, like, super significant. It was just, I think France generated a little more um, as far as, like, chances and, you know, possessing the ball and things like that. Australia, though, did get the best, like, chance individually of the entire first half. They weren't able to score. And in the second half back-and-forth battle again. This game was very physical. Les Omer, by the way, took, like, so many hits in this game, and it almost looked like she broke her nose. So I hope she's okay, but, I mean, it was a very physical, very demanding game from both teams. And obviously, it went the full distance. Neither team was able to score. Both goalkeepers made some tremendous saves in this game. Mackenzie Arnold had a really great one in extra time. There was also, like, a great clearance off the line as well from the Australian defense, just like there was for the French defense. It was just one of those games. It was one of those games that, despite having zero goals, it was just really exciting back and forth. It felt like both teams kind of had strategies to counteract each other. So, like, Australia, for the most part, played through Fowler and then Rasso on the wing. Those were kind of the two who got most of the... They got the ball the most on this team in this game. And for France, it was playing through Diani, which makes sense 
Um, Diani's really good. And Les Omer was the other one who got like the ball a lot. And that makes sense when you're playing a 4-4-2 formation like they were. So that was kind of how the game went. And then, of course, we get to the shootout itself. So in this penalty shootout, France missed the first kick. Australia missed their second kick. And it was tied. And now we're in sudden death round five. And in round five, Australia get the break because France miss. So Australia has a chance to win the shootout. And the person who steps up is the goalkeeper, Mackenzie Arnold. I could not believe Mackenzie Arnold stepped up for this. And she rang the goalpost. Oh, my God. I, I mean, number one, it is really rare for goalkeepers to take penalty kicks. But number two, more importantly, for them to take the fifth kick. Like that, wow, that's... I mean, I thought it was very bold for Alyssa Nair, who's the USA goalkeeper. I thought it was very brave for her to take the sixth kick. Mackenzie Arnold wanting kick number five? I mean, first props, because that is the most difficult kick to make in the sport. I know people say that the first penalty is the toughest. It's actually not. It's the fifth. The fifth penalty is always the toughest, because no matter what happens, your kick will either need to keep your team in the game, so, like, it'll, you know, be literally a savior kick or the winning kick. One of those is going to be your kick if you're the fifth kick. That's just how it is. So, yeah, like, the most pressure. And she ended up hitting the goalpost. And then we went a few more rounds. And then in the end, we had in the 10th round, Australia finally, finally buried it. And that put them through to the semifinals. And to quote the commentator from this game, who, at least on the international feed, cue the party. Because, I mean, the, the watch parties and the country of Australia, which I'm going to talk about a little more here in a minute. But, man, it was just inspiring to see how that country got behind that team. So... Obviously heartbreaking for France, losing in penalty kicks. They had a chance, too, in the shootout because, interestingly for France, they decided to sub their goalkeeper. So Magnin was subbed for Durant, and Durant ended up having a... This was in the sudden death, by the way. She had a penalty kick go right through her arms. Like, she literally had both hands on it, and it went right through and in the net. And just... I can't imagine what she's going through right now because that is one, as a goalkeeper, that will give you nightmares. The fact that she was so close to saving a penalty kick that would have won the game for them. Them's the breaks, I guess. That's the heartbreak and cruelty of this sport that goes along with the beauty and the fun and excitement and all of that stuff. So France eliminated in the quarterfinals again for the second consecutive tournament. And for Australia, like I mentioned, semifinalists for the first time ever in a very, very dramatic game. But I want to talk about the country itself now. So, Australia. What's happening in Australia right now is something that people should be taking note of. Because it is a very, very big deal. In sports, one of the rarest things that sports does or that happens in sports i should say one of the rarest things that happens in sports is when a team can captivate a nation and become the literal beating heart of a nation 
it's really rare. Like sports obviously brings people together, brings together groups of people, all that stuff. But it's really rare when you get an entire country behind a team in the way that's happening with Australia right now. It happens in cricket sometimes. It happens in rugby sometimes. And it happens in men's football a lot. Like anyone who's watched the the videos of the people in Argentina and different things like that, like, yeah, it it happens in men's football quite a lot. And, you know, men's football is obviously the most popular sport on the planet, so that makes sense. Women's football, at least up until this point, I don't think had ever had an example of this. I think the closest was Japan in 2011, but I think that was also motivated by external factors because Japan were obviously dealing with some really heartbreaking tragedies like natural disaster tragedies at the time and the women's team winning the world cup was kind of just it was almost just like the the bright light at the end of a dark tunnel for them this what's happening in australia right now is a little different because it's not really being motivated by external factors it is just this team has become the beating heart of a nation there were watch parties all across Australia. And if you look at the videos, there were so many people. They filled cricket stadiums. They filled rugby stadiums. They filled AFL stadiums. That's the Australian Football League. They had so many watch parties around the country. Anywhere you went, whether it was like, you know, social media or, you know, the watch parties or the stadium itself, like anywhere you went basically to look for things you found something about the Matildas. That's the nickname of the Australian team. The Matildas have captivated a nation, and it is so inspiring. It is so special to see this happening in Australia right now. I am so happy and overjoyed because I just, you know, it's so exciting that women's football has gotten to this point now where it can do this. I know women's football has become pretty popular over the last decade but this was like almost another milestone for it to hit and i think what's happening in australia right now is absolutely comparable to what was happening in morocco this year in 2022 when they made the semis what happened in argentina this year when they won the world cup what's happened in so many other countries in men's football i think this is comparable i think it is it is so inspiring seeing how dedicated they are to this team and if you want more evidence if you're just like well you know i could be looking at selective bias through algorithms on social media okay fine fine all right i'll give you some real evidence so the australia versus france game was the highest viewed sports game in australia in two decades that's right in two decades Australia versus France is the highest viewed sports game in two decades. If that's not evidence, I don't know what is. Like that, that just makes me happy. That just makes me happy. That's amazing. That is awesome. That is exhilarating. The fact that Australia has really, really gotten behind this team. And what the Matildas are doing right now in Australia it will change football forever in that country. It will change women's sports forever in that country. And this will have lasting impacts because it does everywhere else this happens. Everywhere else this happens, this has lasting impacts. 
people will talk about this team for a long time. This is what happens when you have the, these stories, right? I mean, look at South Korea. South Korea's men's team in 2002, when they co-hosted the World Cup, they went to the semifinals. They finished fourth place. They didn't, win. they didn't even win. Didn't matter. People still talk about that South Korea team. People are still inspired to this day about the, that South Korean team. What's happening in Australia right now? That will happen. People will still talk about this team. This team will be remembered forever. For the people that live there, they will remember where they were. They'll remember if they were at a bar at, or at a bar or pub. They will remember if they were at that watch party in Melbourne or that watch party in Sydney or that stadium in Brisbane or anywhere else. They will remember that they were there because that's how inspirational, that's how important this is, that's how awesome this is. So, I know that has nothing to do with the game itself, but I think it is an incredibly important story. Australia, right now, is the literal heartbeat of a nation. And they're on to the semifinals, and I cannot wait to see their semifinal game. Speaking of their semifinal game, let's move on to the game that would determine their opponent, England versus Colombia. So, England won this game 2-1, to one, the final score. I felt kind of gutted for Colombia because I felt like they could have won this game. I think England was a little better overall, but it was, it was a tough game for Colombia, that's for sure. Uh, Arias, unfortunately, got like injured very early in the game. That kind of wasn't a great start for them. But then... At the towards the end of the first half, like we had a few minutes left before the added time, Santos scored a beautiful lob goal. Like she basically, it looked like a curling shot, but it was like a curling lob shot that went just over the fingertips of Mary Earps, the England goalkeeper, and into the back of the net. And that put Colombia in the lead. And of course, the entire stadium was in rapture. They were just over the moon. They could not believe what they were seeing. Colombia led England. And that's that goal, that was the first time in this tournament that England have been trailing. They have not been trailing up until that point. Unfortunately for Colombia, they didn't hold the lead for very long. And England scored pretty much immediately. So this was a just a horrible mistake by the Colombian goalkeeper, Catalina Perez. Basically, it was a shot that she fumbled, or sorry, not even a shot. The ball got played into her, sorry, and she fumbled the ball, and Lauren Hemp was there to just pounce and slot it in and put England level going into halftime. And this was like 30 seconds left before halftime. So it was kind of just the gut punch to Colombia, who just scored this unbelievable goal, had this unbelievable moment, and then England strike back within minutes. And it was, it wasn't like England scored because they made a great play. They scored because of a goalkeeping error. And speaking from experience, as someone that has played this sport for a long time, when the goalkeeper makes an error like that and it's a big game, it's, it, it messes with you. Like, obviously, you're not going to go, like, and be upset about the goalkeeper. Like, you're not going to go get mad at your goalie. Of course not. But it's just, it sucks. It is a punch to the gut you're like you feel like you put in all this effort and then one mistake undoes everything that's kind of how you feel and again that's 
that's why playing goalkeeper is like so difficult and being a being a football goalie is definitely the hardest thing to do i think in any sport but england found themselves level going into halftime and then in the second half stanway played russo through and russo scored nice shot low into the corner and england led two to one and that's what they would hold on to colombia were not able to find an equalizer unfortunately and england find themselves in another women's world cup semi-final they made it in 2015 and lost to japan they made it in 2019 and lost to the to the usa we'll see if they can turn things around this time because they're playing the hosts they're playing australia in this game unfortunately for colombia i actually thought they're like santos and caicedo i thought played really well in this game the only thing that let them down was just like they would make some really good plays they just it was like a pass that would be like just a touch too far or a dribble just a touch too long or ball control not quite at the level it needed to be or the shot wasn't quite hit at the, at the you know at the speed it needed to be or or something like it just there was there was just quite a lot that was just a little bit off for Colombia in the attacking like side of the field and that was unfortunately enough for England to hold on and win the game so Colombia are eliminated obviously it's you know it's gutting for the team because they absolutely had a real chance to win this game but having said that they should be incredibly proud of this team what Colombia has done in this World Cup is amazing and this team is really young they have a lot of good young players on this team do not be surprised if Colombia is a real player in 2027 do not be surprised whatsoever Colombia sadly though will not be advancing forward England going to their third straight semi-final we'll see if they can actually win this time this game in my opinion was a much more convincing performance from England than what happened against Nigeria in the round of 16 it's been a little inconsistent for England in this tournament they've had in my opinion two pretty good performances against China and Colombia and three kind of poor performances where they found ways to win against Denmark and against Haiti and against Nigeria so they're going up against Australia England in this tournament have only conceded one goal from open play and it happened to be the amazing lob goal that Santos just scored on them that's the only goal they've conceded from open play in this tournament Australia has kept five straight clean sheets so if I had to bet on what would happen in this semifinal I think nil nil penalties is pretty in the cards again like I, I would probably bet on a 0-0 over 120 because both of these teams clearly have found very good ways to defend and both goalkeepers are in exceptional form right now Mary Earps has been playing amazing for pretty much the whole tournament and Mackenzie Arnold I mean what she did against France was amazing she was unstoppable in that France game outside of the missed penalty that she took herself of course but man I, oh man that's gonna be such a good game and of course there's the history with England and Australia as well right the colonial history and things like that as well so I'm excited it's gonna be obviously a packed house it's gonna be you know, if the France game was the most viewed sporting event in Australia, 
in the last two decades. I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what the England game is going to be like in this semifinal because both of these teams, reminder, are one game away from the Women's World Cup final. England has never made a Women's World Cup final, and Australia hasn't either. So one of those teams is making history. It'll either be the hosts or the European champions, but either way, I am so thrilled. I hate the fact that this semifinal is at 4 a.m. my time, but you better believe I'm waking up for that semifinal, and I will be watching England and Australia do battle for a spot in the final. All right, let's move on to the other side of the bracket. So I will start with Spain and Netherlands. So this game was crazy. There's a lot to talk about, so I'm going to get right into it. Spain won this game, though, 2-1 to one after extra time. And overall, I think the better team won. However, I believe there was a controversial moment in this match that could have changed the entire game. And this is the first time I'm actually kind of doing this. So I was really mad at a referee decision. I think the officiating has been pretty good in this tournament. In the Spain-Netherlands game, though, the referee called a penalty kick on the field for the Netherlands in the second half because basically Paredes kind of shoved um, Bierenstein in the back. And like not like a shove like with her hands, but like kind of like a a body check, like shoulder check kind of shove. And when I watched it, I thought immediately that was a penalty kick. I thought immediately that was a foul. But the VAR ref didn't agree with that. The VAR ref made the head referee go look at the monitor, and she changed her mind. So it was no penalty. I completely disagree with that decision. I think the Netherlands got robbed. To be honest, like that is a really bad call. That should have been a penalty kick for the Netherlands. I don't know why it wasn't. I really don't. Again, I still think Spain was the better team in this game, but it is noted, like, I have to talk about the fact that Netherlands should have been given a penalty kick. But anyway, uh, let's go to the first half. So in the first half, the closest chance for Spain came when Redondo ended up heading the ball off the goalpost only to get her own rebound and then hit the post again. So she hit the post twice in the span of like, I don't know, how long was that? Like, I don't know, five seconds? Like, not even, maybe three seconds? Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty crazy, the fact that that ball didn't go in. Spain also scored an offside goal in the first half that unfortunately obviously didn't count because, of course, it was offside. Not by that much, but by a little. In the second half, though... At, you know, outside of the Dutch penalty that I talked about. Spain actually got a goal from a penalty kick. It was a handball on the box, correctly called in my opinion, and Caldente stepped up and scored for Spain, put them in the lead, one nothing. The Netherlands, though, after that goal went in, they turned up the heat, and they put the pressure on Spain, and it was actually, believe it or not, their defender, Van de Graat, who scored. She got in behind the defense and was just onside, and she slotted a perfect shot into the corner, and it tied the game up 1-1, sent us to extra time. In the extra time, oh my god, I mean, if you were a fan of this Spanish team or a fan of this Dutch team, like, watching as a neutral, I felt a little bit stressed for both of these teams. 
But if you were a fan of these teams, I mean, you were probably pulling out your hair. You were getting gray hairs. Like, my goodness, this extra time was insane. So it was really back and forth. And both teams, it felt like, could have scored three times each. But the closest chances for the Netherlands came from Berenstein, who slotted one just wide in the first half of extra time. And then in the second half of extra time, she had a golden chance and shot she had a golden chance and shot it over the crossbar and unfortunately for the netherlands literally the like the ball got shot over the crossbar and then there was the goal kick off the goal kick spain went down the other way and jenny hermoso played in a perfect pass for paraguelo who went in and the teenager went and dribbled and shot it off the post and in to give Spain the lead and the win in this game. The Dutch at that point, I mean, when you come so close to scoring at one end only for it to go in at the other end, I talked about a gut punch earlier for Colombia. That was a gut punch for the Netherlands. So that obviously was the biggest goal in Spanish women's football history. They are through to the semifinals for the first time ever. So... The 2019 finalists are done. Spain are through to the semifinals. That was an incredible game of football to watch, and I can't wait to see this Spanish team in the semifinals. Unfortunately for the Netherlands, out of the quarterfinal stage, damn, they really could have won this game, even though they didn't play that well for most of it, but it's just they really had a lot of chances in that extra time. And, of course, they had the penalty kick that wasn't given. And it's that's not an easy loss. That is a very difficult loss to take. And, unfortunately, you know, maybe if they had, you know, a fully healthy team, maybe things would be different. Maybe not. But we'll have to wait and see. Either way, for the Netherlands, heartbreaking. For Spain, just elation because they're through to the semis for the first time ever. And that brings us to the final game, Japan and Sweden. So, this game was my biggest shock of the quarterfinals because I thought Japan, up until this point, were so impressive. And Japan was playing at such a high level, I really didn't think anyone was going to beat them. But Sweden did. So let's break it down. So Sweden won this game 2-1 to the final score. This game also had a lot of drama and a lot of chances. In the first half, though, and actually really for the first 60 minutes, Sweden kind of just dominated Japan. And this was largely due to the fact that I think their strategy, their formation, and everything else was perfectly suited to counter Japan. Basically, because Japan, what they've been playing in this tournament is a 3-4-3. So three defenders, four midfielders, and three forwards. The problem with a 3-4-3 is you only have two central midfielders. And if they're going up against three on the other side, you need to have a way to counteract that. Japan did not have a good way to counteract that. They got bossed in the midfield, and Sweden were able to control the game from there. Plus, and June Endo, who didn't start this game, I can't believe she didn't start. When she came on in the second half, she made such a difference for this Japanese team. Her not being on the field was a big deal because Japan just couldn't seem to get anything going. They couldn't really get Miyazawa on the ball at all, and she's obviously the you know golden boot leader at the moment. And so 
yeah, Sweden, they took advantage of the fact that they had total domination for about 60 minutes. Illestad opened the scoring. Her, it was her fourth goal of the tournament. A long free kick got played in. Japan did not deal with it well in the box. It bounced around, and Illestad slotted it in to put Sweden ahead 1-0. And then the second goal was a penalty kick. It was a handball in the box on the Japanese, and it was pretty obviously a handball. Angel Dahl stepped up and scored for Sweden to put them up 2-0 at the end of the first half. Aslani had a really close chance as well. Yamashita, Yamashita, by the way, was the only reason this was only 2-0. She was the only player in the first 60 minutes for Japan who really played well because her saves kept her team in it. They would, they would have lost 5-0 without Yamashita's performance in net. So, yeah, not like it was just it was going terribly for Japan. The three versus two in center in the center of midfield was just not working for them. And fortunately, eventually they made changes. And it was around the 60th minute that things started to change. Japan had at this point made enough substitutions and made enough changes to the way they were playing that they started to kind of find themselves again. And we sort of saw the Jap- the Japanese team that has been so impressive throughout this tournament. And they were just all over Sweden for 30 minutes. And Sweden had to defend like they've never defended before in their life. Because Japan was creating chance after chance after chance after chance. And unfortunately for them, this is how it went down. So in the 75th minute, they got a penalty kick. In my opinion, uh, I mean, I guess so. I I don't know. I didn't love the call, but okay, I guess so. Ueki, who missed, by the way, should be noted, Ueki missed the penalty earlier in the tournament, but had, you know, the goalkeeper come off the line early, so she got to retake it against Zambia. She was the one who got called to take the penalty again. I thought that was a weird choice. Like, maybe you should have given it to someone else. Anyway, I thought it was a weird choice in the moment. She went bar down and out. Tough one for Japan. They did finally get a goal back. Uh, I believe it was the 87th minute they scored. Basically, what happened was there was a free kick for Japan, and it somehow hit the crossbar, hit Musevich, the Swedish goalie, and, like, bounced around and somehow didn't... I don't know how it didn't go over the line. Like, I just... I don't... I don't understand the physics of how it didn't cross the goal line, but somehow it didn't. Japan, like, 30 seconds later, were able to score. It was a defensive mistake. And Hayashi ended up pouncing on it, scoring, put Japan at least with a chance. And Japan threw everything but the kitchen sink at Sweden for the last 10 minutes of this game. Unfortunately, though, it was too little too late. They could not get on the end of one. And so Sweden hung on to win to beat Japan. For me, I was I was kind of stunned watching this game. I just didn't expect Sweden to dominate Japan the way they did for 60 minutes. And full credit to the Swedes they played really well in this game they had the right kind of counteracting strategy they also pressed Japan a lot which worked in this game and for the Japanese obviously they struggled for about 60 minutes they found their footing but it was a little bit too late in the game and they didn't make changes quick enough like things were just not going well for them in the first half and they needed to make changes a lot sooner than what they did that's you know unfortunately coaching mistakes and those happen in big tournaments so, obviously heartbreaking for Japan. However, despite the, despite the loss for Japan, I think overall this tournament has been more positive than negative. And the reason I say that is because 
This Japanese team is really young. They will be pretty much in their prime for the next tournament in 2027. And you would have to be a fool to bet against this Japanese team in the next tournament. In my opinion, if I had to pick a favorite going into 2027, based on purely what's happened at this World Cup and, you know, the age of the players and, you know, the presumed growth of the players, I think Japan should be the favorite going into the next one because these young stars they have, Tanaka and Miyazawa and they the other really good players they have in this team, Nagano and Endo, like a lot of these players came up together in the same teams, in the same youth teams. And you're seeing that on the international stage now, on the professional stage. And it, assuming they, you know, only get better from here, I mean, Japan's going to be frightening at this next World Cup. But obviously, didn't work out for them at this World Cup. For Sweden, though, they took out the United States, the, defend, the two-time defending champion, and they took out probably the most impressive team in the tournament. I mean, if Sweden doesn't win this thing at this point, like, I don't even know. Like, again, Sweden, for those of you that might not have watched my, or listened to my preview episode, they have been the perennial bridesmaids of the women's international football game. They've been the bridesmaid, but never the bride. They have been so close so many times to winning trophies, and they haven't done it. They finished as silver medalists a few times at the Olympics, and they finished runners-up in 2003 at the World Cup. They've been semifinalists at the World Cup, but they haven't won the whole thing. They haven't won a major trophy yet. So can they finally win one of the big ones? This is the question for Sweden. They've knocked out probably their two toughest opposite like the two toughest teams they could face they knocked out and now they get spain and you know spain are obviously a good team right spain are not a team that you're gonna win very easily against that's gonna be a very difficult game for them but we remember what happened japan versus spain japan killed them and this spanish team in my opinion is not as good as this japanese team so for sweden Based on who, like the teams that are left, just based on how they've played, Sweden should be the favorite. And there's really no excuse. This team, they finished silver medalists in Tokyo for the Olympics. They lost to Canada in that shootout, which was awesome for me. But, you know, that's just because I'm Canadian. But there's no excuse anymore. For Sweden, this was a humongous win, and this was a humongous moment. But they got to seal the deal. I think of all the teams left in this tournament, I think Sweden needs to win this the most. Because if Sweden don't win this year, when are you, when are you going to win? When are, if you don't win it this time, when are you going to win it? So I think oh, there's a lot of pressure on Sweden right now because it feels like a now or never kind of thing, especially for this group of players. But either way, the semifinal should be good. I'm excited to see what kind of strategy Sweden goes with against this Spanish team. Spain obviously has a very good midfield and their their attack has been all right like for the most part like they've been able to generate chances. This Swedish defense will be the toughest thing Spain faces. So I'm really curious to see how Spain might try and counteract that. Although Jorge Vilda has been a little weird with how he's started games. Like he tends to make decent substitutions, but I just question his starting lineups a lot. I think there's a lot of questions to be asked about certain lineup choices and things like that. But we'll see. 
we'll see how it goes. This one's the first semifinal. Thankfully, only 2 a.m. my time, so it's a little better. But either way, I'm getting up and watching this one, of course. And then we're down to four. We're down to the final four. Spain will play Sweden for a shot at the final. And Australia will play England for the other spot in the final. This is it. This is for all the marbles. The semifinals are here. The semifinals are coming. And then the World Cup final on Sunday. I mean, this is this is why you watch. This is why you watch sports. Is for these big games, big teams, big players. We'll see who comes out on top. By the way, my last final note on this. I've thought about this a lot. So in the Men's World Cup, it was pretty easy this past year where it was pretty obvious that the player of the tournament was either Kylian Mbappe or Lionel Messi. Those were obviously the best two players in the tournament, and there was no debate. The Women's World Cup, I've found it's a little more difficult. Like, on one hand, you have, kind of have an argument for a lot of different players, I think. Illustad of Sweden would be my, if I had to pick today, Illustad of Sweden would be my pick for player of the tournament. But I think there's some other really good candidates as well. For Australia, I would have to go with Mary Fowler. I think she would be my pick for player of the tournament. For Spain, it would be Bonmati, who I think is also in the running for player of the tournament as well. and At least she should be anyways. And then for England, England's a little more difficult. Like, I kind of went back and forth on this because it was kind of initially Lauren James, who I thought was their best player. But obviously she got the red card, so that probably knocks her out of the player of the tournament discussion. So, hmm. For England... Maybe Mary Earps. It would be rare to see a goalkeeper get it, but Earps has been really impressive to me in this entire tournament. So the player of the tournament to me is like as wide open as I can ever remember it being. Like last last time around in 2019, it was obviously Megan Rapino, and there wasn't really another choice. In 2015, it was obviously Carly Lloyd. And again, not really much of a choice otherwise. This year, it just feels wide open, you know? Like, I'm not really sure. Oh, in 2011, it was uh, Homari Sawa the whole time. Like, there was no debate about that one either. So, I don't know. Player of the tournament is something, you know, the semifinals will obviously help tell us a lot, but I'm curious to see what people think about it. The only other name I would throw in the ring is Miyazawa, but Miyazawa didn't really play well in the quarterfinal game. And if you get knocked out in the quarterfinals and didn't play well in that quarterfinal, I think it's kind of hard to win player of the tournament. But... She will at least have a chance to win the golden boot for the most goals at the tournament because she currently leads with five, and Illistat has four. She's the closest remaining player that's still alive in the tournament. So we'll see. But either way, that's it. That's all I got for my quarterfinal recap. Thank you so much for listening today. I can't wait for the semifinals. The final is just around the corner as well. And of course, after the semifinals are over, I will have an episode either Thursday or Friday. Just depends when I have time to record. But I will have an episode either Thursday or Friday on the semifinals. And then I will have a World Cup final preview because, of course, I have to have a World Cup final preview where I'll break down everything you need to know about the final itself. Like I said a couple episodes ago, we will have a new champion. There will be a new champion at the Women's World Cup. There will be a new name on the trophy. It'll either be Spain, Sweden, England, or the hosts, Australia. Thanks for listening. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The World's Game, a World Cup podcast. The music is from Pixabay. There will be new episodes throughout the Women's World Cup, so make sure you subscribe and don't miss a moment of the 2023 World Cup.